Well, welcome, Andrew, to the Unpacking Depression podcast. I'm your host, Eugenia McGuire. And the reason for this series is that I wanted to learn more about depression. Um, I feel like it's something I understand in a way, um, but it's not something I've personally experienced. My, my brain's ways of dealing with stress and coping are kind of more... Um, on the other end of that spectrum where I suffer more with the like anxiety and that type of, you know, controlling everything rather than the shutting down so much. So I wanted to talk to people who have lived experience with depression and unpack that and, and hear from people just in this really conversational format and learn more about their experiences and hear what they have to say. Um, We can get into whatever you like but we can get into um, uncovering the etiology and what the kind of causes are the expression what it feels like what um, and just your thoughts around it so I'll just kind of come up with questions as we go but I'll let you jump in here Andrew if you want to introduce yourself. Well thank you for having me uh, Eugenia my name is Andrew Chichak I uh, I've uh, lived in the Edmonton area all my life and uh, I'm, uh, I, I happen to be 61 years old. I don't know what that means anymore. Um, but uh, the first time I had anything to do with depression was as a child. Uh, my mother, uh, uh, God rest her soul, she's uh, not among us anymore. Uh, she uh, suffered from uh, severe depression. And... Uh, Back then, the, uh, the, the wisdom of the science was uh, Valium, Kamiya, uh, put you out and, uh, you know, go on. And there was, I don't recall her having any, any um, oh, any uh, cognitive therapy of any kind. Uh, I think it was strictly, uh, strictly uh, brain chemistry. I could be wrong. Uh, can't ask her anymore. But uh, so that uh, that was a part of my life early on, um, and uh, with her, I mean, it's very complicated. My my case is just can't, there can't be anyone else like me out there <laughs> in terms of uh, family dynamics and things like that. Uh, both of my parents were first generation Canadians. Uh, uh, from the area they're fighting over now, of all things. And um, um, their ideas were very different. And my mom's family, I know, suffered with things such as uh, uh, incestual relationships and stuff like that. And uh, that even that came to bite me uh, in my early teens. Um, um, after, uh, my mother loved her family. And... Uh, especially her parents. And uh, when my maternal grandmother died before I was born in probably 1956 or 57, somewhere around there, my, 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 my paternal grandmother died in 1935. So I never, I never got to know her at all. And uh, once my, my understanding is once my mother's mother passed away, um, it was tragic and everything. Uh, and then her father passed away. And that was expected, you know, family, family, you know, nine kids, two parents. Uh, and um, then I was about, uh, let's see, I was about five years old when my, uh, we lived in a multi-generational house. So my paternal grandfather uh, passed away in uh, about 65 or 65 or 66 um, he was 93 years old and like me he was diabetic and lost his sight early on Um, shortly after that about two years maybe three after that oh just a moment please bruno (laughs) down thank you uh got a pup in the house sorry (laughs) Uh, in uh, then then the favorite uncle, the favorite brother, the favorite son, uh, he was just this beautiful human being, and uh, he passed away. 
and uh, that's when the music died. Uh, the family was quite instrumental. Uh, I mean, playing their uh, you know, violins, uh, accordions and stuff at dances and stuff like that. They were well known out there and, uh, and uh, that, was, that was all good. But I noticed the big change in her uh, after my uncle died. And uh, that was beginning the downward spiral for her. And this is your and mom? My mom, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, alcoholism, of course, was involved. And uh, so um, it took seven years, uh, really hard trying, but she finally did herself in <laughs> at uh, when I was 20. Um, that was a uh, that was a really tough day for me because uh, I knew she'd been um, an alcoholic. Uh, I'd known she had problems with depression, this, that, and the other thing. I also know she was very stubborn. Like you know, you could you couldn't convince her of anything if she had her mindset. And uh, we also we her and I saw the same general practitioner. Uh, Coming up to this time, uh, it was 1981, she passed away. Uh, and the general practitioner, when I was <laughs> when I was 12, he's already got a pretty good idea of the family dynamic. He says, uh, have you ever thought uh, that you might be depressed? <laughs> well, I didn't know what depression was. I, For me, like, what's there to be depressed about? You know, it's uh, you have a, something goes on in life, you deal with it and move on. Uh, but uh, he was right, and I was wrong. I should have taken him up on it at that time. Uh, so five minutes before my mother passes, uh, I finally have, for the first time in 10 years, this lucid conversation of actually communicating with my mother, who it was impossible to communicate with her, otherwise uh, strong-willed. Uh, and uh, so I... Uh, it was like, it's like one o'clock or something like that in the afternoon. And so mom, you know, was this worth it? Was it worth it? Uh, what was what worth it? <laughs> she, when she's being questioned, she didn't like questions. She liked giving answers. Well, you know, drinking yourself to death. Oh, I'm not an alcoholic. Five minutes later, she's dead. So at that point, I'm thinking, what is going on here? Like, this is some kind of weird 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 disease um and uh i know nothing about it and i was that that wrecked me for a long time ended up losing my job over it because uh the railway i worked for cp rail at the time the railway was a nasty place if you were it, uh, it was it was for lack of a better word it was run by pigs uh, who couldn't get out of their own squalor. Uh, it was a um, not a place for a woman to live. Um, these guys were, I mean, just the most unreasonable people I ever met in my whole life, other than my mom. And so, of course, um, I instead of having my problems with depression uh, solved by uh, medications, I uh, chose alcohol myself, uh, and I would be a weekend uh, binge drinker, Friday night, Saturday night, and then, you know, Sunday, go to church, Monday, be fine type of thing. And uh, uh, that got me in a lot of trouble, um, of course. Not, not bad trouble in terms of law or anything, but, you know, you just don't meet the people you want to meet when you're, you know, you know, uh, three sheets to the wind at eight o'clock in the evening. You know, uh, we had a lot of good fun. We had a lot of good times, a lot of good parties. Uh, by the time I was in my mid twenties, we had like fifty keg parties. By then, it was it was a happening place, you know. But uh, so I chose for my mate somebody who was like my mother, of course, except opposite to my mother in the beginning. So um, now I didn't know that my wife <laughs> would uh, have something called severe depression. But on, on her side, on top of that, 
well, they didn't have this diagnosis when she got it, but she had a borderline personality disorder and she still has it and she still suffers from it. It's been very difficult on our relationship and also with the relationship of our children, uh, you know, to certain, certainly to a large extent. And it was even, even this year that I finally uh, figured out that, oh my God, like this is going 40 years and, uh, and uh, I'm beginning to see the light. I'm beginning to see that woman that I met and fell in love with 40 years ago, but she's been uh, on hiatus till then. And uh, again, with the borderline personality disorder, and you could have any, I don't care what it is, but that is the worst mental illness to have. Um, because you cannot reason with the person. Uh, absolutely not. They are right. You're wrong. And uh, and then uh, the thing that helped me on that one was uh, reading that book, um, Stop Walking on Eggshells. It's a really good book to understand uh, uh, borderline personality disorder. And now, of course, there's lots of resources on the internet for things like this. But... Uh, uh, you know, getting, uh, you know, going back to depression and stuff, I finally, um, I had my first nervous breakdown in 2002. And uh, that's when the, uh, all the medications for uh, psychotropic meds started, uh, whether it was for um, depression, but I was also, what he diagnosed on that day was uh anxiety depression this was in 2002 uh, i've been working at a as a water treatment plant operator for uh, epcor <laughs> those lousy good no, <laughs> no goods <laughs> I'm, I'm still fighting with them but that's okay uh and i didn't realize at the time that i also had uh 2002 comes so that's when all my meds for depression and other things start. But I had this unusual um, thing that would happen to me. Didn't know why until this year of all things. My mom would give my dad such a hard time. My dad was, I mean, he was the, you know, except for his alcoholism, he was the person you wanted to have in your corner when the chips were down. He uh, was a uh, <laughs> he was uh, ruthless and cruel. Uh, he was in the Second World War in, uh, as a Canadian, of course, uh, fighting Nazis, not Germans. I, I, I got to tell people that the Germans weren't the problem, the Nazis were. And, um, and uh, he, uh, he was very good at his job. So he would never touch anybody. He would never, <laughs> he would never grab somebody or do something physically to them if he was in his right state of mind. Um, and uh, he was also a sniper. He did all kinds of things. When his country asked him if he'd uh, help uh, bring the war to a quicker end, uh, that's uh, code for we're going to send you behind lines and you're going to wreak havoc. And uh, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and there's no holds barred. And uh, he got into those with those guys. And, uh, yeah, he did some very, very brutal things. I found out this much later in life. Uh, he was still alive when we just broached on it and then, like, died a couple days later. But uh, So she would bother him enough so that he'd go into the grad. She had the, um, the rifle that he used in the war. He had a similar model sporterized uh, because he was really, you know, used to this uh, machine for taking down deer and stuff like that. And uh, and he was, I mean, I've never seen anyone shoot like that ever in my life. Open sights didn't matter. Uh, so uh, he'd go into the garage. Uh, she'd give him enough hard time so that uh, he'd go into the garage and take the rifle down to off himself. And, uh, and then my mom would be watching. Well, what's... <laughs> She's looking through the window, you know, what's going on? What's dad doing? You go see what your father's up to. So, so Monday, uh, it's Monday evening, you know, um, and uh, dad's cleaning the rifle first time this week. 
uh, okay, yeah, okay, dad, good. And then he finishes with the rifle, puts it back. A couple days later, <laughs> same thing. She's giving him a heck. He's going for the rifle again. And uh, so this became a pattern of my childhood for many years. Wow. And uh, so all this whole thing came down uh, about 2002, uh, May 17th, 4.30 p.m. Not that I remember, but... Uh, it was a bad day at work. I uh, I was getting no place with the uh, management in getting the mice. Uh, we had a mouse problem at the plant uh, in the control room, and the mice were doing you know races all night long. And of all things, they're deer mice. And I'd complained, and others had complained to the management on and on and on. And finally, I had enough of it, and I thought uh, dismantling the uh, ceiling tiles would be a great asset in getting the problem resolved and I uh, took a big hammer and I started doing it inside the control room in the uh, Rossdale water treatment plant <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the guys was watching me uh, my, my boss at the time was watching me uh, is this new guy is watching me <laughs> and I'm going to town sparks are flying and uh and then when I had it enough uh, disabled so I could grab the mice with my own hands if I needed to, uh, I uh, the next day I had to see my boss, uh, my boss's boss, the manager. And uh, he sends me this little paper and he says, you know, you're going to be investigated for creating all this havoc and property damage and the whole thing. And we're going to, you know, could you lose your job over all of it? And that's when my brain went bing bong. Yeah, this ain't working no more. And uh, I stopped. Everything stopped. I uh, This was 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, I told my charge operator, I looked him in the face. <laughs> Say charge operator saw me the night before destroying the ceiling. And uh, he looks at, I look at him, he looks at me, he knew exactly what I'm going through. And he says, I said, Keith, I'm sick, I'm going home, and I don't know when I'm back. And I didn't come back for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, so that depression anxiety, I didn't know that it wasn't depression anxiety, because uh, my GP just did his best. Um, the following year, uh, I was off work for a year, and uh, the following year I, I got into an altercation with my eldest son, uh, over an argument with my youngest son. They were, you know, 18 and 15 at the time, 14 or 15. And uh, when a big guy like me, I was probably well over 300 pounds at the time, uh, is arguing, uh, fist fighting with his uh, son. And uh, my wife is around and I said, hey, look, this is between me and him. We've never tussled like this. It's going to be okay. But uh, we didn't tussle okay, and she called the cops. And, uh, uh, you know, when you have a firearm collection and uh, you call the Edmonton City Police Department, they seem to know things. And uh, so I, they came, and uh, then I had the most interesting thing. We figured out that I had to leave the house, you know, fine, you know, cool off type of thing. But legally, I couldn't leave my firearms in the house if I'm not living there. And I didn't know where I was going to be living that night because I wasn't coming home. All the trouble with my uh, dealing with the um, uh, borderline personality disorder and all that stuff with my wife caused me to um, uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good. Where was I? I, I, I sometimes lose track. I can you well you were saying you had to take your firearms oh like, yes 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 yeah yeah yeah, going. yeah yeah so so i um so i mean there's these four burly cops and a couple little ones and uh, one of them is this wonderful constable i forget her name but uh i i like i couldn't get the guys to understand anybody like you know you guys are the cops you're supposed to know i can't have and then i then i also had a license for prohibs on top of it all so i got you know, small firearms, which you can't really, uh, they're not legal for sale in any, in any store of any kind in Canada. But uh, since I have a grandfathered license, I can buy, sell, and trade these things. And they, 
they're very unique pieces. And I always bought, I always collected unique firearms, whether they were rifles, shotguns, or handguns. So, uh, so I turned to her and I said, uh, I can't legally keep these firearms here if I'm not going to be here in control of them. And besides, my wife had a suicide attempt with, with these uh, a few years ago. And I'm not going to leave my firearms here for her to break into and off herself and the rest of the family. So she understood where I was coming from. And they began the process of collecting my collection, uh, which took a little while that day. And, uh, and you know, so we're going through this. And one of the, some of my firearms are military style. And, and so I usually keep the bayonet and the rifle in two different places, but I had them side by each this time in their, in their, uh, in their spot. And, uh, um, so they grabbed the rifle and then the knife, the, the, this, again, these burly guys, they, they got no brains in their head there. They said, well, what are we supposed to do with this? And I said, well, here, I'll take it. So, so he gives me a, he gives me the pointy end of the of this uh, of this uh, is a Chinese style uh, bayonet, <laughs> really nasty one, and he's given me this thing to put somewhere. So these guys are here for domestic, <laughs> and this handing me a bayonet, telling me to do something. <laughs> I mean the, the I mean the comedy and it's just spectacular. I'm just going, oh my god. Like these guys, yeah, that's who I need backing me up when, when I got a call. <laughs> Some thief is coming, or murderer. And uh, so anyhow, so that began a big, huge problem. And uh, the uh, police at Edmonton's finest there, there was this one lieutenant. He says, yeah, you ain't getting these ever. You're never getting these back. And, you know, I had like, God, 30 at the time, and they these were not cheap pieces. They were, like I said, they're all unusual in some way. And uh, so I had to forget about that and uh, go on with my life. We had a cottage and I moved out to the cottage that day and uh, didn't come back ever for, oh, 15, 16 years. Um, but that's when the, that's when my, um, I went out to the cottage on February 4th, 2003. And that's really where my healing began. But I first had to drop into the lowest depths of hell with my depression and everything before I could uh, emerge. Mm. And uh, that's where uh, I found a really good uh, psychologist. Uh, when I went into the walk-in uh, psych psychiatric ward at the uh, U of A, um, they, I had the most perfect uh, psychiatrist there who got me the most perfect psychologist. Now, they didn't intend for that to happen. But, uh, you know, the reason why I was going for the psychologist is apparently I had an anger problem. Well, I didn't have the anger problem. My wife had the anger problem. I, I hate anger. I, I, I dislike anger, uh, everything. Um, um, and uh, anything to do with anger, aggression, I, I don't like any of that stuff. I think it's useless. I don't think we need it. Um, but uh, then you start to realize that, you know, you've been on this road for a long time now, uh, uh, bullied at school because you're a little portlier than everybody else. Well, I was the second most portly one usually. Some days I got the portly one award and uh, – my friends, I had to buy them off. Eventually, they would uh, they would have pheasant hunts in the morning, and I was the pheasant, you know. So you're going to chase down the big fat guy, you know, till he can't run no more, and you're going to give him a few fists here and there, and then uh, then when the buzzer goes, you know, pheasant hunt is over. It's time for learning, and, and uh, yeah, that was that was all junior high school. So so then in this process of beginning the healing of, well, I didn't even know what I had. I thought it was anxiety, depression, but turns out it was PTSD due to adverse childhood experience. And uh, you, you might, uh, you, you might know what those 10 questions are. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago when I found the right psychiatrist for me, 
I scored four out of 10 the first time. And that's hopeless. You know, you're going to have depression. You're going to have obesity. You're going to have diabetes problems. These things are all predicted on these stupid things. I mean, on this, not stupid things, but on this test. And, uh, and this guy is brilliant. He's 78 years old, but uh, man, I wish, you know, they should duplicate this guy and give it to the whole world because he cuts to the chase. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not the guy who's going to be affected by, um, by um, the, uh, Oh, what I should say, the uh, if you're not going to get good help through um, the talking, uh, uh, through um, psychotherapy. Mm. Sorry, my uh, macchiato is cooling off. <laughs> so uh, uh, so uh, anyhow, it was, um, so I got six the second time. So I'd been holding back. And I wouldn't say that my life was is was like every day it wasn't like that it was you know yeah once or twice this happened yeah once or twice that happened and all of a sudden you get six out of ten um well that's where um i found uh sorry the um i started seeing this uh, she has complete notes of my of my uh history with her i contacted her last year she's not practicing anymore but uh, she's certainly interested in getting that uh, documentation to anybody who wants to uh, uh, help themselves or others by looking at my situation, what I kind of been through, and how I survived until today uh, with it. Uh, so there's all of that is available because I got to the idea uh, when I got bounced out of Epcor, uh, I had to go in three 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 months. I was in uh, bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy. I uh, was too young to pull a pension. I had zero income, you know, overnight. Uh, and Did you qualify um, for any disability or anything like that. Well, I couldn't. I hadn't applied for any yet because I didn't know I was going to get bounced. And the only reason I ended up bounced that day was the union had it in for me too. So they, I guess, what happened was, and I can't. Nobody's talking. Nobody will talk. But I'm kind of opening a few doors on my end. I guess I want to know what happened. Like, why did this go down? And why am I the only one who's who's not getting until 65 all of my medical expenses covered? Everybody else does except me. You know, I'm the guinea pig. I could, in terms of my history with Epcor, I was a guinea pig in so many things, and I never got I never got the fluff afterwards. <laughs> Always the I don't get what everybody else is getting in terms of uh, ability to. Um, further yourself when i started in water treatment in 1991 you started as an operator and you ended as an operator there was no going anywhere other than being an operator and i was the guinea pig for the uh, we had a wonderful manager mr kellen donk of blessed memory he uh he saw the potential in operators like myself and he says yeah you know these guys don't need to be able Hey, you can do something better, get some more money. You know, they they were journeymen, um, instrumentation, electrician, and mill shop, millwrights. So, you know, we need those guys. Well, how, how, what a better thing to have a millwright who's already knows about water treatment, you know. Mm. Makes sense. But uh, the guy who got that very first job, and there were many after, he said, uh, you know, if I get this job, and we all knew he would, he says, there's only one person who deserved it more. And it's you. And I said, uh, I appreciate that. And I like this guy. <laughs> I We got along really well. And uh, he did get the job. And uh, he, uh, so they paid his education for five years. He worked a couple more years, got out and hung his shingle up. <laughs> He's running his own company making vast amounts of money. <laughs> and I got stuck with the... Uh, <laughs> well, the uh, less than stellar, <laughs> the less than stellar um, management, etc., uh, etc. Et because I would have been out of the, I would have been out of the water treatment plant management system and more into the mill rates and stuff. I would have had a different boss that I could actually talk to. Because uh, a really bad thing happened in 1991. Also, is I took a, in when I was in grade six, there was a university. Um, 
university students in the um, psychiatric department were uh, wanting baseline. Uh, they were comparing IQs of of uh, parents and children aged twelve or something like that. Okay. So uh, in 1990, I was listening to the Bill and Bill show on uh, CJC. No, yeah, CJCA 9:30 CJCA. Bill Matheson and Bill Jackson. Yeah, yeah, Bill Matheson. I met him met him once at the studio down there, and and he's just a, he was just a little guy, but uh, boy, what a wonderful human being. Anyhow, I digress. Too many stories Andy got in his head. <laughs> so um uh let's see now uh, where was i where was i where was i this time <laughs> um you were uh there was these iq tests that were being oh yes 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 yeah. so uh mm-hmm. dr dobson who was uh, at the university in 1990 uh, he's he's taking uh and he would be a guest on the show or after the show uh and talking about psychiatric issues so i uh I liked that. I said, I had one done when I was in, I was 12 years old. Might as well see what it's like when I'm 30. Well, um, that took a day and I was exhausted. And the next day they uh, come to me and they say, uh, yeah, yeah. What did you say you're taking school for right now? And I said, well, I'm going to be, I got a family to feed. Kids need braces. I need a union job and water treatment is a one-year course. And, you know, I, I can do it. Well, yeah, I, I did it all right. I had to look after my kids every day. So I'd go in to West Terra in Stony Plain, drive out there at 7 in the morning, check in, get my name signed so I could get paid by unemployment insurance, <laughs> drive back, look after the kids because my wife was either working or in the hospital for her own issues. And uh, so I came up with a score of uh, 184. And 184, as you probably know, is, uh, you know, you, you're dealing with people who have trouble relating to the world like everybody else does. And, and I certainly understand the different way I look at the world. And, um, and then on, in your career, when you're, you know, you just, you're so quick to pick things up, especially in a mechanical, electromechanical <laughs> That's just the puppy. He'll be fine. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and uh, sorry, I was looking past the computer there. And so, um, yeah, I I really was stuck after that because they I went the university called me like a couple of days later and I explained to the situation. I said, look, I I have all this ability. I was uh, I learned to be a software engineer without going to university. Yeah, I had that job when when I was like 18, 18, 19 years old, 19, I think, 20. I was 20 when I got that job. And um, I just loved it. We were programming things that didn't exist there. Like, uh, we were solving problems. Uh, I installed one of the first uh, word um, word processing systems in a clinical environment in Edmonton because uh, I worked at the Allen Clinic at that time as their, one of their software engineers. Uh, just a moment, please. I, I have to go get puppy. Sure. <laughs> puppy, is, puppy is into no good. Right, just a moment. <laughs> That's what puppies do. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> Anyhow, I uh, uh, and then my career kind of. I had two more uh, mental breakdowns. That was that was the one in 2002, and then I think I had one in 2008. By that time, I'd grown a well over 400 pounds, and uh, uh, the body doesn't. Uh, doesn't like that uh, full-blown diabetes, uh, insulin dependent, uh, and uh, still not knowing that I had PTSD and that knowing that would have really helped. Uh, I think 
that, oh yeah, uh, just finishing the story at the U of A, they phoned me and said, hey, you know, we got the perfect job for you. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, he says, well, the perfect job for you is a heart pump technician because you know the electronics, you know the this, you know the that. You're obviously geared towards this kind of mechanical thing and you know you love working with people. I mean, the job I was doing is, you know, uh, near a million people are my customers when I go to work. I, I don't give a crap about my boss, but I want, because my boss wasn't always interested in making the water as good as could be. And, and on top of that, when they did contaminate, nobody heard about it. So, you know, you got a million people with contaminated water. This is in the days of, uh, of Yorkton, uh, not Yorkton, uh, Waterton, Waterton, oh yeah. Yeah, we're we're talking major caca, and these boneheads get away with it, you know. And uh, it was a really nasty place to work. I, I just did what I could for as long as I could. Uh, so in San Diego, I would have been a heart pump technician earning a hundred grand, uh, training on the job. And I pitched the idea to my wife and my three young kids who were heading to the states. And my wife had a total breakdown and. Uh, uh, let's say there was a questionable, uh, was she going to kill the kids or not? That was that was what I was left with that day. And uh, so that, my career ended, <laughs> the career I never started ended. And uh, I put up with uh, what I could to provide the best for my family for the rest of uh, the days until, uh, uh, you know. So when you say breakdown, like what did that look like? Like what would happen? I would, I would. Um, so um, I would be so angry. My dad taught my dad taught me. I had great uh, natural strength when I was a kid, um, city kid, tossing up seventy five pound bales onto the top of a hay rack. That's not what a city kid does. Okay, so I, I had <laughs> the city kid will be in hospital for a while after that. <laughs> um, so um, my dad convinced me uh, never hit another human being because you can kill them with one punch. Mm. And uh, then I found out later that, yeah, his voice of experience is talking. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Ah, so so now I would get so angry. Uh, I mean, and and my anger is all turned inside. Um, I don't lash out at anyone, and all this stuff is going and going and going. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, I'm that. What happened in two thousand and two is I distinctly remember. I didn't really do anything wrong. I was trying to make the place safer. Deer mice have hantavirus, and these things are running around. I complained about it. Nobody did anything, and, and now I'm getting the the gears for it. Well, when, what when else? You were was like I? taking down the ceiling tiles. Was that was it like fueled by this like frustration in that, or was it just? Oh yeah, that was all matter, part of it. Yeah, because like, matter of fact, like I'm just taking these down, or was it oh, like no, no, you no, were really no, no, the, that yeah. was that was that was releasing anger, mm -hmm. and and uh, boy did it feel good. I mean, mm -hmm. I've never done anything physical when when angered. Um, I would I wouldn't do that, but mm -hmm. man, taking oh, that hammer just and just down. <laughs> oh yeah, it was great. You know, I was I got on a little bit of a step ladder, and I. I'm knocking down the wires that are holding down the ceiling because it's a T-bar ceiling. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I only did a small part over by the printer where the mice would regularly come running down and into the other computer room that we had because it was all subfloors. And and so the mice, they've been running, they've been running roughshod forever. So, mm. uh, and And so at the end of that, I was when Rudy Rudy is the name of the fellow who uh, my manager who who had this little investigation sheet going and and um, later on I, the doctor said well what happened to you then was that your livelihood and your 
children's li uh, lives were would be affected if you lost your job. And certainly that was true. Not only that, but uh, we lost all the value that we would regularly lose. We helped for um, Barb, uh, for her psychologists, because we did find some that would help her. Um, and so at the end of that day, I remember I just went home, just just left. I went home and I sat down and I watched TV and two years went by. I, I couldn't do anything. I was just sitting there watching TV all day long. I, I didn't know where, where I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just sitting there trying to live uh, because I had a good plan. Like the, at least this time, everything was being paid for. Because uh, uh, why I hated management so much was uh, an incident happened at the end of 1995 when EPCOR well, we were the city of Edmonton. I was hired by the city of Edmonton, and that was great. Those guys I could deal with. Uh, these these guys, uh, they're they're making this Edmonton Power Corporation. They can't call it that legally, so it's called EPCOR. And then we say, well, isn't that Edmonton Power Corporation? Isn't that what that's it? No, no, it's it's EPCOR. It's nothing to do with Edmonton Power. Edmonton Power was the old guys. Okay, <laughs> okay. And um, that day, the uh, the top guy at Aqualta, he's the top guy. They called him the bear. I found out why later. Um, but uh, he's looking me right in the... I was temporary in a temporary... I was permanent employee in a temporary position, which was unique. But they were touting they were going to get, you know, Epcor was going to take over, trimming the fat. And uh, and uh, he looked at me when they were talking. I knew the guy. We, I'd met him before. Obviously, it didn't make a good impression the first time. Um, and uh, he looked at me now. Yeah, there's jobs for everybody here. And two weeks later, that guy who in 2002 gave me that crap for the uh, for the uh, ceiling. Uh, he was the guy who was the manager at that time. At that, that was at the E.L. Smith water plant. So, so um, this is December uh, 1995. Uh, he has the meeting. They were called Roadshow. And uh, he said, now my wife had been already quite, quite, quite sick. And we'd found her the right help. And all we needed to do was for me to keep a job. So I said to her, hey, remember top guy? He was telling me. And the whole group of people in the rotunda there at Yale Smith that nobody here is going to get laid off. Everybody gets a job. And so uh, it wasn't true. And when I went home that day, I knew that no matter what I did or said, it was going to end bad. And sure enough, uh, I, I said, hey, you remember? Well, here's my pink slip, you know. So, We'll just do what we normally do come Christmas and no job. And because uh, I would get laid off seasonally uh, until then, uh, that's the way it was to get a permanent position. But I was a permanent employee in a temporary position, and the guys abolished the temporary positions. So there were no layoffs. They just abolished the position, and you get turned out. And so, me and I. The thing that bothered me most about that was I was permanent in a temporary position at one plant and a guy who was temp temp at the other plant. Uh, so she decided that life wasn't worth living anymore and she attempted suicide. And when she screwed that up, uh, she came into the room and the kids saw what was going on. Now I got a real problem on my hands. I got three kids who are witnessing their mother attempt suicide. And I got no job. And uh, yeah, this is going to turn out just well. Uh, and um, so what keeps a guy like me going? Faith of all things. Um, you know, over in uh, Ukraine right now, they're fighting. Um, and I'm an Orthodox Christian from that area. Uh, we were there for a thousand years. And uh uh, it hits close to home because I visited there in 1979. But, um, um, yeah. So the only way I was able to 
survive at all was my, I was taught to forgive. I didn't know what forgiving meant, though. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody knows what forgiving. How do you know you've forgiven somebody? How, what's the, what's the, what's the rule? What's the, you know, what's the measure? How do you know that? And um, after talking to, and I've spoken to some, oh my God, these men and women. When I say holy, literally, they could walk on water. These guys and women. Um, I mean, they literally are in touch with God somehow. I don't know how, but um, they have this way of looking at things, which is, it, it's, it's, it's the, it's the Christian way of looking at things before the 15th century. Very different, very different thoughts on salvation, very different thoughts on all kinds of things. The Protestant Reformation hadn't happened yet. It was going to happen in the West, but in the East, Greece, uh, Russia, all those places. Uh, yeah, no, that was um, very different theology developed. And, These uh, are people where, sorry, they were part of a church that you went to? Yeah, yeah, part of church, uh, Orthodox. <laughs> Orthodox Christians uh, were the were the big brother nobody talks about in the West <laughs> until, until this war has uh, interested people in early Christianity because we haven't changed anything since you know 300 AD um, and before that we were underground of course so. Um, so the faith, so you start talking to these people, and yeah, these people have had tragedy in their lives, and they've got through it. Uh, there's stories. We have saints, like uh, if I had my camera uh, above me, is Saint Nicholas and Saint uh, Sarov of Sirvin, Sir and Saint Patrick of Ireland. Uh, these hung in a church once, but uh, the uh, priest gave them to me. Says, "You make them a new one." So I did. Anyhow, so we talk to these people. Sorry? When did you become like devout? Oh, uh, from the cradle. So, um, Orthodox Christians, we uh, baptize, confirm, and uh, anoint all at the same time, 40 days after birth. Uh, if uh, birth has some complications and you need to get it done sooner, you get it done sooner. And uh, so, uh, you. Orthodox Christianity is a lifestyle more than a religion because it's just, you know, you do this, you don't do that. You do this, you don't do that. You know, you, you're helping, you, you know, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless. Uh, and that's how we lived. And I grew up that way. We, I can tell you stories of how many times a, a weary traveler was on the couch at our house. Uh, because we lived next to a united church. We didn't go to it, but they figured that the Padre lives next door, except the Padre did live next door, but the house got demolished and ours became the next door. Oh, interesting. So, so you know, um, and my, I mean, the, I got to tell you, when I was about seven or eight years old, and it's a typical, they're going from the north, heading towards downtown. and. Uh, he was decked out in all his leather, um, the tassels, everything. And, and the, his wife was just, I mean, a doll. I, I mean, you don't, you, you got to look in the museums and history books to see these people. But they were right in front of me, you know, 1968. Um, and behind her was this papoose and the baby in the papoose was just so comfortable so the beadwork uh, I'm, I'm i'm looking at this thing this art and this way of living and i thought boy these guys know how to do it <laughs> Why, how come we have so much trouble anyhow <laughs> lots of things from my past influence my future i guess Sorry, yeah so when you were like that was such an interesting thing you said about you you kind of crashed and then you watch TV and two years went by, like, what were you feeling at that time? Or were you just not feeling anything? Like, is that the whole thing? I think I was time? not feeling anything. I, that's why I want to really look back on those notes uh, from the Dr. Uh, Judy Munch was, is her name. Uh, and I really want to look back into how that, what I was doing and how it, it might be a great thing for you to do too, <laughs> if you want access to that sort of thing. I don't know where you're going. Uh, but uh, she'd have lots of insight into me. 
So the, you're the, just like numb, like to, just totally just numb. Just numb. You know, I go through the motions. I'm kind of you know cook, eat, sleep, do all these things. But in the mean, there, there's no thinking really going on. Like I'm going through the motions of living, but there's no planning for the future. There's I, I'm just figuring out how to get to the next day. Uh, and that was, like I said, I was early on in 2002 and only recently I got the help I needed. But the, the thing I wanted to talk, just mention about the, uh, these uh, holy people and, and uh, cause forgiveness is the thing you know, with Orthodox theology. And I was asking, how do I know I've forgiven somebody? And he said, <laughs> This time it was a he. He said, you will remember the event happening, but you will have no emotional attachment to it. Oh, my God. Well, that that was the best thing I ever needed to hear because I still had emotional attachment to everybody who ever, pardon the French, screwed me over since I was a kid. I mean, none of it went away. There wasn't, you know, I'm I'm in my 30s now. and. By the time 2002 comes, or even older, 40, and uh, um, all of this pent-up anger, rage—it it was there under the under the skin. I attempted my own suicide. Uh, I had a great plan, and then God showed up and wrecked it for me. Um, That's—you uh, mm, can't tell too many people that story because they just won't believe you, and. Uh, and uh, I know what I experienced. I know how I experienced it. I was lonely. I was alone. I was so, I was out in the middle of nowhere. Like there's literally where I was living next to a lake with nobody. There's like five people around the lake who live there all year round. And uh, I'm there in my little cabin. No, no, no insulated walls, this wood burning stove. I got cherry red hot and I'm still in my boots because it's freezing inside. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just heading out. I'm putting my shorts on and I'm heading out for a walk and it's February and it's 40 below and I'm going to head out onto the middle of the lake. And by the time it's time for me to come back, it'll be too late and I'll never make it. And bang, finish, pain over. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, um, Jesus came into my life literally at that point, and uh, I knew that I had still work to do, and I had to get well and uh, continue on, but I did have two more. There was a second time that they showed me that nasty paper, and that story is beautiful. I have that one well documented. I got that paper again one day, but I was much older, and, uh, and that was 2008, I think. I think it was 2008. Yeah. What paper is this? Sorry. Well, I had another breakdown. Uh, let's see. How did that one happen? I'm trying to remember how that happened. Yeah, we were accused of doing drugs, and uh, they had no claim whatsoever. And uh, they they upset me so much that day. It's uh, I'll I'll. I'll I'll write the story for you to read. It's you can't make this stuff up. And uh, that day was that was in 2000. I'm pretty sure it was 2008. Could have been as late as 2010. Uh, that was the one that really, really, really hurt me because uh, I'd never been accused of such a thing in my whole life. I don't do drugs. I hate drugs. Uh, I think uh, having alcohol as a uh, mind-numbing device of some sort to get somebody through the next day is too much but it's acceptable uh, i never enjoyed uh, uh, drugs of any kind i i never had anything more than pot which i could not stand and uh and um i had shrooms once uh and after eight hours of being stoned i thought what is this for and who would want it like why do you want to be out of your head for like days on end well, it turns out <laughs> my psychiatrist, you know, um, I also, so as I'm poorly obese and everything and I'm running my age, I have osteoarthritis, both hips are gone. I've had them both replaced now. 
but the pain was incredible. So now I'm on, he got me off of the Dilaudid by using medical cannabis. And, and, and so I'm just like, I hate this stuff. What am I, why am I, why is it coming back in my life? It caused me nothing but trouble before. And uh, now I say, you know, I am, um, I'm off the Dilaudid. I mean, that's one down from fentanyl and it was doing nothing but giving me, um, uh, it was giving me, uh, um, what do you call that? Uh, constipation. <laughs> uh, so it turns out, I said to him, okay, okay, you convinced me I got PTSD. We did some, uh, um, we did some EMDR. Mm. Oh my God. If you can become a good EMDR practitioner, you're going to solve a lot of people's problems. But it is so tricky to find the right person to do that. I'd had EMDR before, and it was ineffective. This guy, like he must have written a book on it or something, like bang, two sessions, and I'm already, oh, all this, all this, this anger, this frustration, all this stuff is coming out of my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's through EMDR of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, when you know, when will I know that my PTSD is gone? And well, you know, about these people that I like, none of them have to do all the hard work. I got to do. They cause my problem, and then I got to do the hard work. Well, what fair is that? He said, Well, life ain't fair. Uh, I said, I know. I got I got that when I was about three. But uh, when that leather strap came down a few times, uh, that that'll turn your that'll turn your head a little sideways. Uh, punishment by, was by the razor strap. Uh, I was three years old the second time or third time. I can't remember how many times. But I had a tantrum. I remember I was three years old at the very most, and I had a tantrum. I'm banging my head on the floor. Okay. Well, here comes my mom's cigarette in one hand, a razor strap in the other. <laughs> well, you will stop doing that. And if if you're going to die, at least it'll be by my hand. Mm. Well, That's what a three-year-old needs to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, he said to me, you'll remember the event, but you won't have any emotional attachment to it. <laughs> well, that's brilliant so what he's got me on now and i haven't started yet is uh for the ptsd because there's some stuff that is hardwired it won't go away because when it happened and uh yeah psilocybin is the key and uh microdosing psilocybin so i uh i have some illegal psilocybin at home in my alberta house here all the way from bc because they send it in the mail you know Oh, you can get a kit. You can make your own mushrooms, mushroom farm at home. <laughs> the world is so different. But these pharmaceuticals that God provided, I'll say nature for those who get nasty for me saying God, but um, it's there for us. It's Everything's there. I, 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 I have honey. I have bees here out of the farm. I, uh, I didn't winter them well. The mice got in, and I'm still pretty disabled uh but uh honey boy so in the past eight years i've lost 180 pounds Mm. i uh i'm still losing weight now uh three weeks ago i was on 54 units of traceba i'm on zero today that happened overnight um is that diabetes something related to diabetes or what's that it all happened all at the same time. They're, they're still stumped because they they've never seen this. Uh, I got my foot infection and the diabetes at the same, and the, the, the reduction in need for um, insulin at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought they were maybe related, like the body is using so much energy, it's taking the extra sugar. Um, but uh, that can't be the case because, uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, the way that they explained it to me as well, yeah, well, that would be for a few days. But uh, so there's so many things going on now. And one of the, sometimes they use antidepressants for pain control. And I was on one of them as well. Uh, if you ever be, hear of anybody on gabapentin, recommend that they throw it in the garbage and run away. Because uh, I'm one of those lucky ones who got the uh, 
got really bad um, hallucinations. Um, if you put a cardboard box in front of me and asked me what was behind it, I could tell you what was behind it, like literally. And uh, and then you could say you could put an apple on the desk in front of me and you say, "Where's the apple?" And I couldn't see it. I mean, this was and that's that's when I lost my job. All this stuff was going on. I'm on this lousy pain medication, and then. Um, and then it's time to get well because you have to apply for this, that, and the other thing. And um, uh, yeah, well, that did I answer really, your question? That was, that was interesting what you were saying originally. You're talking about forgiveness, and that's kind of what I was thinking of when you said, "Well, like, how do you know you've forgiven?" And it's like when there's, I was thinking, well, it's like when you don't have the charge, but sometimes it feels like you don't have a charge and then meanwhile you know there's there's another layer that you can't see um but then I thought about when you said when you said that I thought oh that's just like trauma therapy and I yes. am familiar with it's trauma as therapy. well where yeah. you of course you remember the events that have happened to you they were traumatic at the time but and then you process them and then you have a recollection of the events, but you don't have the emotional charge any longer. So you're no longer right. you right. Know, wounded and affected by this. Oh, you got it. Yeah. It's so very, it's a, very like, helpful. Kind of, yeah. Correlated those, those two things. I feel like there's um, many different paths to um, kind of the same place. Oh, that's true. And every, you see, that's what I learned early on is that everybody is an individual. Yeah this group of things will help for a similar group of people, but getting well is such an individual thing. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. There is, everybody needs, and everybody needs that one thing. Do you need, do you need a um, group therapy? Do you need intensive one-on-one -on -one therapy? Um, um, do you need drugs? Do you need drugs in combination with uh, uh, you know, psychotropic medications in, in concert with, um, um, mental um uh, the processing the brain processing stuff yeah <laughs> sorry yeah. sorry hang on another slurp of java here <laughs> yeah well that's probably a really good place to to wrap up just kind of talking about the uh i feel like we've come full circle in a way um yeah yeah you know there's uh i'll just tell you about this there's a there's a really interesting um there's an art show i was involved with organizing at the leduc arts foundry um it's in the leduc rec center for the month okay. of may and i know where that is yeah there's a little gallery there called the arts foundry which is it's kind of right next to the dairy queen in, in the lrc yeah. in leduc um it's uh 25 artists with lived experience of different mental health challenges so it's really powerful um, wow. the different kind of pieces and modalities and their stories and that. So yeah, get a oh, chance. you just reminded me I was, uh, when I was working for the clinic back then again, I was, I, I switched jobs again. And I became their building superintendent at one point. And there's, I got so many stories. I got to stop, but my, the young guy I had, um, I elevated the, I had to fire the old guy. Uh, who was the uh, manager of the cleaning staff because he was checking in, going, playing bingo, and then coming home, locking up, and, and everybody else is doing all the work. Well, I caught wind of that, and he, I said, you, you have, you're not here for four hours a night. You, we can't pay you for four hours a night. He says, well, then you'll have to pay me more for three hours a night. <laughs> this is the kind of people I've been with in my whole life. I said, what are you talking about? I fired him and the poor guy, the the young kid, a university student, kind of kind of lost his way a bit. But I thought it'd be a great job for him. Uh, a couple of weeks in, <clears throat> I get a call because uh, because uh, this guy ain't coming in. Uh, he's 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 not coming in. Uh, I had to phone his mom. I said, "What what's going on?" And she says, "Well, uh, I don't know if you know, but Terry's a bit sick, you know, and uh, and." Uh, I said, well, well, is he coming in? Do I have to get someone else? Is he going to be okay in a few? No, he has uh, he has an illness. <laughs> and uh, what's that one where you think everybody's looking for you and stuff like that? He's, oh, like he paranoia was, uh, or something like that? Sorry? 
like paranoia or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Paranoid schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, and one of the one of the really good staff I had, she tells me everything, and and uh, by the way, it was her cousin that got fired because. <laughs> She'd been tired of doing his work, and he was winning, winning bingo, not sharing it with anybody. <laughs> so I fired him. Terry, I elevated. Says, "Yeah, there, we thought there was a problem. He 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 vacuumed, you know, the whole clinic like he's supposed to, but uh, he didn't have the vacuum cleaner attached." Hmm. <laughs> Poor Terry. I mean, this guy is just a nice human being. He hadn't been on his medication for a while, and uh, yeah. Uh, the added stress of elevating him, even though he was perfectly capable of doing the job, mm. sent him over the top. Mm. So how do, how do we know when we're sending somebody over the top? To, mm-hmm. to I'm sorry. I, I stopped now. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, it was really nice to get to know you a bit better, Andrew, and just hear your story. And I think it'll be really interesting for others to listen to as well. So. Thank you. Um, just want to thank you again for having the, the courage to be vulnerable and, and share all of that and put that out there into the world and thank be you. part of this um, Unpacking Depression podcast. And these stories well, yeah. are all really, really interesting and unique. And I yeah, think it's really my, privileged uh, to listen. Thank you. Uh, another good one to talk to will be my daughter. Uh, she... Mm. Um, she uh, became a special needs teacher mm. and uh, she taught for one year in uh, Newcastle, England. And we were fortunate enough to visit her back, back then. And uh, the way they do things over there, very different than here. And she said in the school system, they're at least 10 years, 15 years behind mm. uh, what we're doing here in our school system. But um, her, uh, Jennifer is off on maternity leave right now. Her husband, John, is also an educator, a musician, and uh, uh, assistant principal. Mm. And uh, they alerted me the other day to the squid game that mm. the kids were talking about. Mm. So these grade ones and twos are talking about squid game. Yeah, and that's exactly what I looked like. Yeah, deer in the headlight, like, what is going on? They and, should not be and, watching that. <laughs> no. and, and, that and yeah. So we're, we're, these kids are all going to need well, one third of them for sure, because that seems to be the numbers, are going to need therapy. Yeah, um, that's definitely not a great one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and so, so he says, I got to watch this for, uh, you know, for my, to, to understand what, what I'm dealing with here. So mm-hmm. we watched the whole series and I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Who would let their, now I let my kids a little too young watch Aliens. Okay, I, my bad. I didn't know at the time that it would be bad because 60s TV and movies was different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a, they were going from the theatrical shooting the guy to the chest splitting open and blood and organs flying all mm-hmm. over. It was better yeah. to use an wow. imagination. Yeah. So, so we're going to have, incredible. we need more people like you to uh, look after these kids now. Because <laughs> uh, they don't come with an instruction manual. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's definitely alarming. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I'll well, leave you alone. Thank you again, Andrew, and um, yeah, take care and keep in touch. And um, you sure. can, um, well, I'll just pause the recording here. So thanks everyone okay. for listening. <laughs>